0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, China Red, a Caleb Frost novel, and the author is Ralph Sanborn, and Ralph joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ralph.
2: Hello, Steve. How are you?
1: Well, he's the kind of character, Caleb Frost, that you hate, but at the same time you root for him, and we'll find out how that all comes about, because this man is a professional assassin. Let me read what you've written about your book. Caleb Frost strives to find retribution for his parents' grisly murder by becoming an assassin. Drawn into a world of terror, uncompromising violence and death, Caleb and his team of assassins are hired by China to terminate the Visigoths, a motorcycle gang, and the U.S. end of an international drug smuggling ring. So, obviously, uh, a lot about reality in the world, but at the same time, uh, it's a fiction novel, but it is a page-turner. So, tell us about yourself, Tell us about yourself, Ralph, a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book.
2: Well, I'll tell you, my uh, background uh, was basically a business background, but I always was reading this genre of thriller. Uh, It was my, you know, the police and the crime stories and the thrillers, uh, and that genre has been my reading material. But I was in marketing for, well, several large companies back east uh, on the east coast in New York, Chicago, and uh, also out here in California. Uh, I ended up out here in California working for some of the electronics companies, software companies, and as uh, has, uh I tell many of my friends a lot of my creative writing was done mainly on annual reports and my expense accounts and uh, ads and brochures <laughs> and then back in nineteen in 2005 I started writing a little bit of this of this book China Red and it, the situation came fairly clearly because I had heard about these. Uh, what they're they're called the Uyghurs, and they're a Muslim uh, sect, I guess you'd say, in Western China, and they're being persecuted even today, even within the last couple of months. I've read about it um, because they're not Chinese; they're Muslims. They came over the mountains a thousand years or so ago, and uh, you now they've they've gotten pushy about the fact that they belong in their mountains. As well as the Chinese. So that sort of intrigued me, and it occurred to me that what they might be doing out there is raising um, heroin, making heroin. And uh, on the street, uh, China White is heroin. But in this case, I toyed with this, and uh, it's all fiction. I said, "Well, my guy is going to wrap his uh, heroin in red packets and smuggle them into the United States. Red being the happiness color, and the heroin being what people take to get happy, I guess." And so this storyline sort of went on. And meanwhile, I developed a protagonist, Caleb Frost, which you said is a bad guy in the sense that his he is trying to find retribution for his parents' death, and to do that he's become a very professional and very proficient killer. But the guys who are smuggling heroin are very bad people as well, and uh, I had to create a, a gang, which uh, I call the Visigoths, um, and they're headed up by a beautiful bad guy named Wrath. Wrath, and he is—that's his street name—is Wrath, and he's the head of the gang. And so it gets down to basically good against evil. Although some people, as you did, would say that, well, my good guy is an evil guy too, because he does go killing people. But it's a fascinating uh, story of the chase to find out where the heroin is being imported from and where it's being distributed from, which turns out to be uh, New Orleans. And so a lot of the action takes place in New Orleans, and it takes place on the road to New Orleans. And uh, then there's a major kidnapping. And... Caleb has to go back and resolve that as well, particularly since the kidnapped person is his sister, Rebecca, known as Reb. And so that's the the end of the book, is that uh, final showdown between Wrath and Caleb on the cliffs of uh, Big Sur, which is uh, down the coast from San Francisco, uh, a lot of redwoods and high cliffs and fog and Great place to have a, a final showdown, and that is the sort of the book in summary. Uh, I think that what I hope, I hope that everybody who reads the book will come away with a favorite character. I, I personally am quite proud of the characters I've created, and I hope people will like them and will have a a, a favorite favorite character and take one with them. <laughs> But,
1: um, he's put together this black he's put together this black operations team yep. uh specializes in what is called wet work Well tell us about the team and tell us what wet work is all about
2: uh well uh wet work is act- is killing that's what wet work is a black ops uh black operation uh could be any spy operation, but when you get into wet work you're killing. And that's what that is about. And They specialize in that. The team is comprised of two ex-Navy SEALs, uh, Jake and Frank, who are very proficient in uh, weapons, explosives. Uh, they can even fly helicopters and so forth. I mean, they'll they'll they can do anything I say. They can do, Steve. You know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's not yeah. their
2: choice. <laughs> <laughs> so in the second book, I suddenly made Frank a pilot <laughs> of a helicopter, and uh, who knows? Who knew? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Who knew he could fly?
2: <laughs> who knew he could do that? Well, not until book two, do you find out. But
1: uh,
2: anyhow, the uh, the team is quite interesting, and the fourth member of the team, you've got Frank and Jake, and you've got Caleb, of course, who is the team leader, Um is you've got Irene Constant. And she was born in Piraus, Greece. And uh, I've just written a blog about her in particular. She sort of intrigues me. And a lot of women like her. Of course, she also is a killer. But a number of women who read, first, read uh, China Red say, I, I like Irene. You know, she really is. She's good. But she's uh, she was a Greek... Um, um, escort in New York City. I tell people if you're not 18, you shouldn't read the book because as uh, one of my son's mother in laws said, the language is a little bit rambunctious and, they, and some of the characters are rather rambunctious too in terms of their backgrounds. But Irene mm-hmm. was a, uh, was a uh, escort in New York City and uh, she got into all the crowd, the business the U.N. and so forth, has huge connections, and, um, she's very, very active in, uh, in the story. She's, uh, she has, is a sniper. She's got sniping skills, and, uh, we use her that way in a couple of instances, and, uh, yeah, she's a tough lady, and she's beautiful, and, uh, so that's the team of those four, and they, of course, are run by uh, William Thorndike, who is the uh, controller who controlled the parents, Caleb's parents. So well, there's always a little suspicion about him and the parents' death, and uh, you know that sort of continues on. I've had people come up and say, this guy Thorndike, and I say, hey, William's okay. They say, no, no. Which is interesting when people interpret your your book, you know, in these discussions as to who's a good guy and who isn't a good guy. So that's uh, that's the story.
1: Well, as we look uh, you know, at, that's what the,
2: the wet operation, Steve, is just they kill people. That's that's what a wet operation is.
1: Well, it's something you probably wouldn't put on a resume, but in this case, these folks do probably. Yeah, that's right. Well, it depends on who the resume is going to, right? That's right. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So, we're talking about international drug trade, international drug smuggling. It's big business, it uh, is a very violent business, and that's what. You know, you've thrown into the mix here. There's a lot of money on the line.
2: Well, you know, that's an interesting. The uh, guy, the Chinese guy, who hired the Muslim Uyghurs to work for him, and he's brought. He's an ethnic Chinese, but he's given them up in the mountains in the hideaways that he has created. He has given them. a a mosque, he's given them a school, he's given them a hospital, and he's given them arms and taught them how to use it and how to fight the Chinese, the Red Army, if they come after them. So he's up there, and he is a wannabe 15th century warlord. He dresses like it. He's got long fingernails, long beard. All of his guards wear the... uh, you know, the, the old uniforms with the big helmets with the horns and, and the, uh, the uh, protective armor and the, so forth. Um, anyhow, he, he, uh, he's a bad guy, and he's the one who's producing the heroin. And uh, the Chinese are concerned about drugs. I mean, it, drugs are really forbidden in China, and that, that's a fact. Um, so, smuggling it out, and I won't tell anybody how we do the smuggling, but it's sort of fun the way the smuggling occurs. Um, you know, it gets into the port of Oakland here in California. Well, actually, China White, the heroin, comes in generally from Europe, through Europe, so even this is a bit different that the smuggling is occurring Mm -hmm. through the port of oakland and uh then it's distributed and then of course we keep seeing in the news about uh huge catches of uh of drugs smuggled in and and captured not enough unfortunately but uh you know it happens almost on a weekly basis and you'll find it someplace in the country somebody gets caught with a lot um it's an active business, and it's, they protect it with guns and knives, and whatever is at hand. Yeah. You know? and, so, and
1: then you've you've already mentioned Wrath. Um, I thought thought it was interesting. though no, he's this guy is brilliant. I mean, he's just yes. not a killer, psychopathic killer. He's brilliant.
2: Yes, he is. He is. He uh, was raised by a prostitute mother and a jailbird father in the gutters of Oakland, California, and but he is brilliant. And one of those philanthropists who give money to uh, underprivileged but bright children finds him, and he attends Harvard all the way through the Harvard B School. And uh, anyone who knows about the Harvard B or any one of the MBA Programs in any university, they, most of them in the business side, they have to create a company. So he designs, while he's at Harvard, he designs a scheme to hook up with somebody producing the drug. He figures out how to smuggle it into the country, and his motorcycle gang is created to supervise, protect, and collect the money for the drugs he distributes. So the motorcycle gang, which now numbers, uh, well, it's got maybe 16, 20 chapters, all in strategic locations. So when they're guarding a truck that's carrying the drugs, there's always some outriders who are with the motorcycle gang providing protection and collection of the funds. So they play a very active role in the story. And uh, that was interesting. Again, that was uh, when I went to my basic researchers of Mr. Google and Mr. Wikipedia and said, "Teach me about motorcycle gangs." I learned a lot, and uh, a few good friends who I found happened to have been associated with <laughs> some of these gangs. Um, so I got a lot of insight, and people seem to appreciate the, you know, the detail. And it's fun right. to give some detail.
1: But, yeah, Ralph's is one, a great character. As one reviewer put it, this tornado of a thriller drags the reader into a world of guns, bombs, swords, and death and won't let go. So I guess that's about sums it up with the intensity that the book really portrays. Well, Ralph probably. Sanborn. Yes, yes, we've been listening to Ralph Sanborn, the author of China Red, a Caleb Frost novel. Ralph, tell us how to get your book.
2: Well, uh, you've got the two big ones, uh, Barnes and Noble and Amazon, of course, and it's available in hard, soft, and and ebook format. Um, and uh, it is available to bookstores, to local bookstores, and we do want to promote the independent bookstores. Uh, one of the you know, one thing I, I didn't say, you asked about my background. There was a store in San Mateo, California, called Emma's for Mystery. Uh, a gentleman, fine gentleman named Ed Kaufman was the proprietor. And uh, I walked into that store one day, and I was at home. This was heaven, right there. Every book <laughs> I ever wanted to read of the genre was there, Emma's for Mystery. And that was a major influence. In uh, I met all sorts of people there all sorts of uh top writers because he had them in doing readings and these people authors will always spend time with you and talk to you about the craft and i learned an awful lot from that store
1: well thank you so much ralph for being with us on iuniverse radio
2: well thank you very much for having me i appreciate it and uh You know, it's possible if uh, your listeners read the book, they can uh, contact me and give me critiques or give me (laughs) kudos, whichever way it goes, you know? (laughs)
1: Okay. Fantastic. (laughs) It all helps
2: get the next book.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ralph. We'll look forward to the next one. All right, Steve, thank you.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right
1: after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
3: Look at the schedules
1: on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
4: No football, finger, connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 Central on Toginet.com
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hi, greetings for Steve Jorgensen
5: and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Journey of a Thousand Seasons and the author is Robert J. Matsunuga. Robert, welcome to the show. Hi. Tell me a little bit about your book. What type of book is this? Is this an adventure or is it a fantasy book? How would you describe it?
3: Well, it's uh, it's a uh fantasy and it's sort of an adventure too and it's um set in a world that I created, I made up this world. not in any particular country at all. It's in another um I think I would describe it sort of in another plane of existence, you know, another dimension. You know, okay. another existence that occupies the same, you know, dimension as ours, but it's totally different. It's a different world. It's Earth. But it's a different Earth.
5: Your book um, cover describes it as this. In an ancient world, the Seneca tribe uh, once lived in prosperity scattered across a great continent. But now uh, their once beautiful land has been transformed. The trees are blackened and dry. Crops have failed. Water has dried up. That describes the world that you have created. Yeah. And what is it, what is this world called?
3: It's basically, it, it doesn't have any particular, I didn't put any particular name in it. It's, um, it's Earth. It's it's our Earth, but it's in a different the uh, different type of Earth, different plane of existence. Not on another planet, but it's in another universe. Or Earth in another universe, like. And it's um, one moon has all the uh, I think eight planets and all that. And um, it's like in a sense, if our history were changed, someone were to change that, and some of the other type of history were to emerge, in a sense, like. If, let's say, the United States never existed or Canada never existed or other countries never existed, what would the history be like? What would the history of the world be like? And this is a different world. Um, maybe the continents are a little bit different but somewhat almost similar. It's the people with a different cultural outlook than ours. They have, um, they're have they sort of like in charge, sort of like villages, but their villages are pretty large. It's about maybe size of a small city, maybe half the size of San Francisco, let's say. And people are um, highly, basically, have technology, a certain amount of technology, pretty much. Some of it is more advanced than our technology. Some of it is less. They don't have any, like, highways or any, like, um, well, this, these particular people that send don't have that. They live in pretty large buildings and pretty small uh, buildings at all. Some of the common people live in smaller dwellings. The People are, they have a lot of science. They have technology, science, and art, and architecture, all the, very high culture. It's a very high culture. And they have neighboring, there's neighboring peoples too. It's sort of like a nation. One time there was, between the neighboring um, tribes, there was um, hostility, but there's no hostility anymore because there's very few of them now because things have changed and not too many people have been born and um, they occupy a place. That once was occupied by a great civilization called um, Kashmakil, and that civilization would had a huge city. I mean, the city would be the size of maybe uh, Spain and France combined, and that's a huge city. And
5: is this contemporary, or is it placed in in uh, the past? What time frame is it
3: written? Would be in in our terms, it would be in the past. Yeah, somewhere in the past. But they're more advanced than us, so they would be way ahead of us. You know, maybe it would be maybe. A thousand years ago for us, it would be a thousand years ago.
5: Is this Uh, the first novel that you've written? Yeah. It It is. is. So it's your first adventure novel and Uh, fantasy novel. How did you come to write this book? What motivated you?
3: Well, it was, I kind of tried to imagine what, uh, imagine, um, what another civilization would be like that had broadcasting television, airplanes, or spaceships. What would they be like? And I can imagine, like, they talked about, like, something like Atlantis. Some people say Atlanta may have had technology, maybe not, maybe yes, but it's sort of like that. What would would a broadcast from a culture with a complete different language from ours and totally different from all the cultures we have on this planet now, how would it look? How would they see things? How would they um, write? How would they broadcast even radio or anything like that? We wouldn't be alike.
5: You must have a, a very vivid imagination to construct a book of over 150 pages of this uh, this yeah. unbelievable world that you've created. Yes. What background it's- do you have prior to writing this?
3: Well, when I was a um, child, I was um, when I was in elementary school, a lot of the kids and myself, we were exposed to a lot of world mythology in the different cultures like Viking mythology, Japanese mythology, Persian mythology, Greek, you know, Norse mythology mythology, Roman, all different, even especially Hawaiian mythology, because I actually was born in Hawaii, so I was exposed to that, and uh, even African mythology, and teacher used to teach us that, and she used to have a very, I remember, a thick book on mythology, world mythology, and we're all into that, and uh, that's all we learned about different peoples, and then I started uh, studying about different uh, types of cultures at the time when I by because I was interested in different cultures. You know, especially their art, because I'm into art. So she's you know, looking at uh, Persian miniatures or, you know, Renaissance, Italian Renaissance or ancient Japanese paintings or Chinese paintings or even Aztec painting or Mayan painting or even the sculptures, too. So I was always interested in the different cultures and decided what would it be like to make up a different culture, different from all the others. So you've and, taken
5: some of the elements of that and incorporated it into your story. Yeah. Now, did you yeah. take some of your art appreciation and, and, uh, work that in as well?
3: Yeah, I think I sort of did that. Maybe it was subconscious, but kind of imagine the people and their clothing too. Describe that too. What they wear. And the type of hairstyles and then even the way they look. Because I've, like, architecture like that too is, you know, like, um, different parts of the world people live in dome-shaped homes or some of the homes are even strange looking, very oblong looking, or shaped like eggs or whatever. I've seen something like that. Or even I was exposed also to, you know, like um, the strange architecture, kind of space age architecture, too.
5: Amazing. Now, this book, who do you think it would appeal to?
3: Um, Fully to people that are interested in fantasy, science fiction, and maybe into that might have an interest in different cultures, too.
5: People who are interested in and follow role playing video games would this be of interest to them as well.
3: I think it might be, yeah. I think it would be. Yeah.
5: Describe the process that you went through. Uh obviously you have a great imagination. You have a background in art. You're interested in multiple cultural things. How did you put this book together? What was the process of writing it?
3: Well, it's like a it was sort of to me it was sort of like a I just started writing sort of like an like almost like an automatic writing, like something was telling me, dictating to me something. And I just started writing it. And the story started coming out, you know, as I was writing it. I was experimenting with different ideas and everything. Some of it I scratched out. And gradually, as I kept on writing it, it just, like it wrote itself, like someone was telling me about this culture. And it's like I was describing it. And um, it's some... it's kind of a strange process.
5: But your imagination basically took you on a trip and on a journey.
3: Yeah, yeah.
5: Uh, you take the readers along with you. Uh-huh. Are there any themes or messages specifically that stand out in this book that you want the reader to uh, focus in on?
3: Well, like any problem, you know, like these people have a lot of problems and. There's more than one way to solve one problem. There's hundreds of ways to solve one problem. There's all different ways to attack any problem that you have, um, any kind of technological problem, you know, physical problem, anything to deal with things. And um, this particular culture deals with different ways of dealing with that one culture, I mean one problem. And um, the thing is um, also it's about the balance of the environment. And, you know, balancing the nature, natural world and man's world. And this is what it's, um, their world is beginning to die because that, uh, previous civilization that, uh, developed these things called the orbs, that's to cultivate, originally to cultivate the land, you know, to farm the land, cultivate everything. It's like a, sort of like a, like a, sort of like a biological computer like thing. And the thing is, it's, it's programming went haywire, so it started Destroying the land instead, everything.
5: Now, uh, if you hit the but jack the jackpot and, and someone steps up and says, "I love this book. I want to turn it into a movie," is there a particular scene that you think would be an outstanding addition, or something they should focus on?
3: Well, I think the 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 hardships of the characters, what they went through, you know, and the um, the world itself. It's it's totally different from ours. So it would be very different architecture, different way of dress and different mannerisms, and um, even the creatures. You know, there's these things called the Charzine. They're sort of like, they're not androids at all. They're sort of like creatures that are living, but they're man-made. But they're sort of not technological. They're kind of uh, conceived in another form of technology, a different type of technology from ours. And these creatures are living creatures, and um, they come alive. And um, they're all different shapes. The ones I described there sort of look like a one looks sort of like a buffalo shaped like a man, the other one looks like a wolf shaped like a man. Sort of like that. And they're they're all different shapes. Some of them look just like people, some of them look like something else, look like animals. They're all different types. And they're these people have a um it's they found out, um, later on in the story they found out where these things came from too. They came from this uh desert world that is in the future, their future, the world that's turned to desert and this girl named Katika made them, actually made them. They say this is where they were coming from. They weren't sure where they were coming from, but they've always been in that world. And in the her world, that world is a desert world because it's been all, and the environment was all almost destroyed. So they're now trying to feed that world with life again. So the people live underground.
5: Oh, well, in this type of, of book where there's a, where it's a fantasy adventure, uh, this fantasy adventure, is it similar to other books in the marketplace, or is it a little bit different? Uh, what sets it apart from the crowd?
3: I think I think it, it's, it's different in the sense that um, a lot of the fantasy books take a place in in medieval times, and a lot of them I've seen, and this doesn't take place in any medieval period. It's not, it's not a medieval society. It's a very highly developed society, and with a lot of technology, and some of it's much more advanced than ours. Some of it. People, um, well, there's no castles, there's no forts or anything. It's just people that try to live in harmony with their world, but it's very difficult for them to do that. We kind of have the same problems as you know we do in our time in the 21st century. All kinds of um, problems with their governments, with their different groups coming together, all kinds of things.
5: Was there anything challenging about writing this book that you uh, haven't mentioned at this point?
3: I wasn't sure how it would be received because I think it's different. I believe it's different. And it's trying to conceive of the cultures, you know, really writing them. That was hard. And describing the people, that was the challenge. Describing the people, the way they look and everything, and, uh, you know, places and everything, that was kind of quite
5: difficult. I would think it would be. Very difficult to describe something that doesn't exist except in your memory or in your mind. Are there any words that would describe your book and recap it if you were describing this or introducing it to someone?
3: Well, it's a fantasy set in its, um, a culture that doesn't exist in this world. It exists in another world. And it's very, um, it's about imagine something in a totally alien culture and journeying into that culture and seeing what they're about. And their problems are and what their aspirations are, what they want out of life and everything, and um, what they um, believe in and how they're trying to solve their problems, especially their environmental problems.
5: And then trying to relate this story so that the contemporary readers can also get something out of it. That would be a big challenge. The book title again is Journey of a Thousand Seasons. The writer, Robert J. Matsunaga. Thank you again for joining us today. Uh, tell us, where can we get a copy of your book?
3: Well, it's um, on Amazon.com. It's on, I think it's on, um, it's iUniverse, you know, bookstore. And it's a thing called BAM. It's, I think, Books a Million and Barnes and & Noble.
5: Excellent. Is there another book in your future? You getting the urge to write again.
3: Yeah, I'm writing another book again, another one.
5: Fabulous. Thank you again, Robert. For Steve Jorgensen and
0: iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
4: Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com.
0: To iUniverse Radio
1: with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Even Better: A Guide to Winning in Life. And the author is Bill Ballister. And Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill.
6: Good morning, Steve. How you doing?
1: Well, it's an honor to have you here, the most winningest coach ever. 88% as a gymnastics coach over a period of, how many years were you a coach?
6: Well, I coached for about 22 years. I, my last 10 years of coaching was at the University of Oregon. Uh, like I said, it was for 10 years.
1: So through that time, you learned some lessons about life, obviously, because we all know coaches come and go but some coaches they move all over the place and they're always winning and others just seem to never quite make it and so your book is filled with nine principles of winning teams and we're going to find out about your research and all the coaches that you interviewed but first of all give us a little bit more background on yourself bill
6: well, well, thanks. Steve, I, I started out like a lot of us uh, uh, without any idea what I wanted to do in my life. and uh, in fact, I ended up in college more to play and to have fun rather than to study anything. And one day I was walking by the gym and uh, saw an open trampoline, decided to go in and jump on it. and, and after about an hour, I realized I wasn't alone and uh, the bottom line on all that, my coach to be Bill Mead, Uh, invited me to try out for gymnastics and actually at that point I had direction in my life I wanted to be a coach I wanted to be a highly successful coach in fact I kid about it I told people I wanted to be the best men's gymnastic coach in the country and probably in reality I wanted to be the best men's gymnastic coach in the world and that was certainly a big dream for somebody who would never even been involved in sports so that started everything, and that's how I got going in coaching. And uh, and was fortunate enough after ten years coaching in Illinois high schools, which was the premier uh, gymnastic area in the in the country at the time. I was fortunate enough to come to University of Oregon, where I got a chance to coach not only great collegiate gymnasts but a, a few international teams as well.
1: So out of that. Out of that, as you look back on all of it, and you see the big picture in life and, and know that there are true principles, doesn't matter uh, what you do with them, they all apply. And so along the way, how did you end up consulting with companies? Now, you went from the coach, you know, on a team, and then in the, in the sports world, then you went to become a coach on a business team.
6: Yeah, well, that was a change that was uh, very uncomfortable initially. My dream to be a great gymnastic coach was shattered uh, many years ago when the university, like many universities, dropped men's gymnastics. And then for the next five-year period, I, without a dream, I had no idea what to do. And again, uh, over a cup of coffee one day, talking with a friend of mine, we began to notice And have a conversation about sports again that some coaches seem to win no matter where they go and some don't seem to win and we wondered why and we wondered if there was a similarity among winning coaches and and one more thing that uh, that I'd like to add here and that leads to the business we noticed over the years uh, that in most universities there weren't a whole lot of formal programs about coaching and uh, and how to provide leadership to teams. So uh, along with our question, are there similarities among highly successful coaches, came if there is, could we create a model from the world of sports and athletics to take into the world of business, as it turned out, and government later. So anyway, that's how we got going, and we decided that, well, let's find out. So we ended up spending almost five years interviewing some of the nation's best coaches, now just for the sake of, of, of clarity, these coaches came from 11 different sports, both men and women, and from coaches that coached little kids and age group sports all the way up to professional coaches. So we did find, yes, there is similarities or there are similarities among these highly successful leaders. And, yes, these same principles, these same basic truths that apply to sports apply to all teams. Now, not only did we learn that they apply to business and government teams, they apply to family teams. And uh, once while interviewing a very successful woman here in the West Coast, uh, she interrupted me, which frequently leaders will do, and they do that because they want to learn more about what you've learned rather than tell me what they know. But anyway, she said, you know, Bill, you're going to find out, I think, that these same principles that apply to sports leadership and sports team building and apply to government and businesses will also apply to families. And I'd never thought of it that way and, of course, began to look in that, in, in that way. And that's what the book uh, – you know, Steve, the, the, the hard part about this book was that I wrote this book about sports – about winning in business, about winning in government, and about winning as a parent in terms of the leadership of your team. That was a difficult part. I was advised by many people, maybe I should have written four books, and each one separately. But, you know, we don't live our lives separately. It's segmented. We're all on teams. We're on national teams. We're on family teams. We're on our work teams. So uh, that was the real challenge, and that's why and how I wrote even better.
1: Well, you've broken the, your book down into five parts. Uh, the first one is called The Journey to Winning in Life. Part two is Leadership Model for Winning Teams. And then three, the nine principles of winning teams. Four is how to solve problems. Five, tools for life. Well, let's back up and look at these nine principles. We obviously don't have enough time to talk about all of them, but to give everyone just a... a uh, peek into the real basic bottom line principles that really govern any aspect of life. Let's just start with principle 1. You call it the double win.
6: Yeah, and you know that was one we struggled with. It the bottom line on it is is if you're a leader of a team and that's what this is is about team building, whether you're building a team, a family team or a business team or a sports team, they're all the same. And the first basic principle is is that there's a direct correlation between the investment you put into your team members and the return you get. Now it's easy with children. When our children are born, we spend a huge amount of time we have to teach them what to do, what not to do, how to talk, everything, and there's a direct correlation between the investment that uh, time that parents put in and the outcome later on. So that's the first principle, and again it's it's not profound but it is obvious if you want to win you have to invest in the growth of your players of, of your children or of your business associates
1: well we have to change our thinking you mentioned that in part one you talk about this scarcity to abundance what what are you talking about there but but i think we all know if we're going to succeed and if we're not succeeding at that moment in time something is wrong so we have to change so what's the scarcity to abundance
6: well wow, that's a that's a good one i an analogy i make which most of us are familiar with is uh, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty thinking and i i relate to abundance thinking or scarcity thinking there are some people in this world that think there's enough for everything to go around for everyone and there are some people that think that if i don't get it uh, and he does then i lose now let me bring this back a minute To sports. It's easier for me to use those analogies. In sports, we frequently talk about winners and losers. Now, what I'm suggesting here is there doesn't have to be losers. Uh, Scarcity thinking means that if you win, I lose, or if you get it, I don't get it. And abundance thinking means that we can all win in some way. Now, I don't know, Steve, if we want to go into it here. Please be aware of the fact that I think winning on Saturday is important. When I say winning on Saturday, that's the that's traditional win-loss kind of a situation we have in sports where there's a winner and there's a loser, and I think that's a very important part. The people that are leaders of teams in business and families and even in sports do not have their primary reason uh, for existing is winning. Their primary reason, we learned from all this research, was to make a difference in someone else's lives, to help them out, to help them grow and learn. Now, the interesting thing about it is, if we can help our children, if we can help our employees, if we can help our players on our teams to learn and develop as human beings, as well as the skills they need to function in the world. The byproduct is winning. That's the funny part about it. It uh, it will happen. Business the same way. You invest in the growth and the development of your employees, not only in terms of the skills they need but invest in their growth as human beings and the byproduct will be a bottom line and the business will make money and be successful. Now, I don't like to talk a lot about politics, and I'm certainly not political, but it's the same in government. When people invest in the people in their country and these people become educated and understand what the value is to be a part of the country, then they perform better, they're more productive, and as a result, a a country will prosper.
1: We're going to go back to the nine principles of winning teams. Uh, We've already talked about principle number one, the double win. And then, of course, two is adaptation. Three, alignment. Four, contribution. Five, responsible freedom. Tell us about responsible freedom.
6: Oh, you are picking the good ones. Well, (laughs) the good news is that every team that's ever existed goes through this. Whether it's how many rules and how many laws – should we have, as opposed to not having laws or rules. In fact, in families, sometimes we even have two parents that will argue this. Well, I think there's too many rules because if you have too many rules, you don't have the ability to uh, to create, you don't have the freedom to explore, and yet too few rules in in a team will result in chaos and people not working together. So responsible freedom simply means that within all teams, you have to have certain guidelines and rules that you follow. And the players on the team or the people in the business have to agree to them. But then you also want to give the players and these people, your children, the freedom to be able to expand these rules and to test these rules, and you constantly want to be expanding these responsibilities by giving them freedom to move within the confines of, this, of, of the responsibilities. And now golly, that's not nearly as complicated as i made it sound. It's pretty simple. All people on teams need guidelines that they understand and adhere to and follow. But these guidelines want to be as loose as possible, in my mind, to give them the freedom to do things on their own.
1: Number six is integrity. Seven, positive learning cycle. Eight, the balance of extremes. And number nine, progressive mastery. And then in part four, how to solve problems, you ask this big question. Is there a secret to winning? That's everybody wants to know that one.
6: Well, you know, when it boils down to it, and I gave a lot of thought to that because I was frequently asked that question as I went around the country, and people say, come on, Bill, give us a 10-minute version. You've talked to all these coaches. You've learned how to win. How can you do it? How can you tell me in 10 minutes? And, of course, as you've already noticed with our conversation today, (laughs) for me to do anything in 10 minutes is almost impossible because I like to talk. Anyway... uh, the secret becomes fairly simple, uh, and not to do, but to understand. You have to decide what it is you want to do. What is it that you really are trying to accomplish? And that's your win. And that came for me as a dream. My dream was to be the best gymnastic coach in the world. Now, that was my dream. That was my goal. Then I started working backwards. Back, well, how do I do that? And, and then I decided, well, where am I now? Here's where I am in terms of getting this dream. And then I began to identify the problems that stood between me and where I wanted to be. And ultimately, you solve the problems. And he who solves the most problems wins. Now, that's the simple answer. Now, that, that's very, very broad and very, very generic. But ultimately, sometimes we have to go back. You know, it's interesting what we learned from these great coaches and what I learned from the great leaders they learn how to simplify everything. Now, it's interesting to me, the analogy, again, in sports. Uh, this is football season. You talk about the freshmen. You read about what the coaches say. You read, you hear about what the freshmen have to say. And when they get in, particularly in college, everything, the game's so much faster. And uh, they're not accustomed to it, even though they may have been stars in high school. And what happens is in time by the time they're later in the year or sophomores, they say things like, "Gosh, the game has slowed down." Well, the game hasn't slowed down, but they've been again to understand it. It becomes simpler for them to comprehend, and and of course that's that's true with all of us in life. Uh, and and the the simplicity that I'm referring to here in terms of solving problems, you got to identify them and then you got to solve them. And the more you can solve the closer you'll get to your dream and the sooner you'll get there.
3: I'd like
1: to finish on this last as last part of your book. It's uh it's in the how to solve problems section, but I it just kind of grabbed my attention, I think it would anyone, because it says the title of this section or this chapter, Why, 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 why <laughs> so <laughs> We've got we've got about a minute, so tell us about why 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 why.
6: Well, okay, that, that was an answer I got when I talked to a young man from Japan who had been highly successful. He had trained educationally all over the world. Was he came to the United States to take over a mid 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 level management job, and I asked him, "Well, what can you tell me that's different?" that you've learned when studying in Spain and certainly in Japan and other parts of the world about how to solve problems. And he answered me with just that. Why, 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 why? And I, well, my question immediately back to him was (laughs) why. And uh, so he began to explain to me. And uh, again, I'm going to really make it short and would encourage people to take a look in the book. Uh, I don't mind you know, there's nothing in the book that I wouldn't share with you now or share with anybody on the telephone, uh, but I would encourage you to read it because I've had a chance to develop it and have it edited. But the the story, the bottom line is is they, they learned in a major company uh, in Japan, and, of course, we've all learned that since, is that don't ask why just one time when a problem happens. Uh, ask why at least five times. And, again, I'm going to go through this real quickly, Mm -hmm. I hope. Uh, This had to do with an optical company, about a half-billion-dollar company. So it was a major optical company in the world. And they were having problems with the lenses not being up to specifications. And so they said, well, why? Well, what they did is they went to this machine and to this station where all the errors seemed to be happening, and they learned that uh, the machine was out of tolerance, the bit. And then instead of just fixing that machine, they said, well, why? This was the second why. Well, they've learned that that uh, the reason it was out of tolerance is because the motor that turned the bit that made these lenses was not functioning properly. Well, why? You know, they could have stopped there and replaced the motor. Well, the reason is because they had done away with their maintenance program. And again, why? Well, they did that because they weren't making the profits. Well, why? And then they began to look at marketing. They began to look at the research that's being done, who they were selling it to, and found out that they were not marketing it to the right group of people. They're buying the most glasses. And this process continued until they literally changed an entire company because they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they asked why at least five times. So that's what that's about. And so, what I've encouraged people to do, we usually, when we have a problem within a team, our first reaction is why, and we frequently stop because some person made a mistake, including ourselves. And then we function as if that's true. What this the story is about is ask at least five times why. Now, I don't know if that's way too long a story to tell you why, why, Stephen.
1: <laughs> no, that explained it perfectly, and it makes a lot of sense. In fact, I was thinking about a number of different uh, situations that I've been involved with. I'm going to ask the why question many more times and see if we can get to the bottom of things. That just makes a whole lot of sense. Even Better, A Guide to Winning in Life. That's the title of the book, and we've been listening to Bill Ballister. He is the author and the most winningest coach ever. Bill, tell us how to get your book.
6: Well, well, I Universe, of course, uh, published the book for me. That's one source. Amazon has it, Barnes & Noble, um, Gosh, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question.
1: <laughs> uh, well, now it's yeah, you can yeah I mean, I think so. Anywhere. I think it's available.
6: Sure. Go to the internet, look at Bill Ballister even better. And I'm sure there'll be somebody there. who will tell you how to find it.
1: That's for sure. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Really been a pleasure and an honor to have you with us on iUniverse radio.
6: Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to, to share what I do know. And, um, And certainly appreciate the opportunity to visit with you, Steve. Thanks a lot.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio, radio with a cutting edge.